Hey, I'm Mel. And I'm Andres, and you're listening to Mixtape, your favorite Afro Latin podcast. What she said. Quiero contarle, mi mano, un pedacito de la historia negra, de la historia nuestra, caballero. Y dice así. Today we're listening to Rebelión by Joy Arroyo, which translates to Rebellion. El Joy was a very successful Colombian salsa singer and Rebelión is one of his biggest hits. Chances are you've danced to this song in many socials. Rebelión's iconic introduction says, Quiero contarle mi mano un pedacito de la historia negra, de la historia nuestra, caballero, y dice así. I want to tell you, my brother, a little piece of black history, of our history. And it goes like this. Then the band hits you with the piano and the clave. In Rebellion, Joe first teaches a short history lesson of slaves being brought in chains to Cartagena, the main port city in the 1600s in what is now Colombia. Joe sings, Esclavitud perpetua, perpetual slavery. Joe then inserts the story of an African couple who were enslaved by a Spaniard, who treated them very badly, until one day when the slaver decides to hit the woman. That day the man rebels in fury. Joe sings, No le pegue a la negra, que la negra se me respeta. Do not hit the black woman, my black woman you respect. Welcome to side B of our third track. This is Mixtape. Yeah, yeah. So as, as black women pursuing professional dance here in the United States and being business owners or instructors of these dances, Are there barriers that you have encountered to, in your rise to professional um, and personal success as it relates to, to racism in the, the business world? For, for the both of you and, and Lauren, when you were in, in St. Louis and even now in New York City um, and Kimberly here in, in, in Raleigh, what have you experienced? Well, I think when it comes to that, like I've, as a professional, I felt like there's been many times I've wanted to quit because of that lack of representation and because of this this glass ceiling that like I'm doing everything I can right I'm the best version of myself as a dancer I've invested thousands of dollars I've trained with all the top professionals I've even gone to Angola where like the root of root of everything is you know like what more do I have to do in order to get chosen right I also lead probably better than a lot of the male leads, um, you know. I have, so, I have seen that. I can, yeah. I, I can. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> do I have to do? Like, I am so technically sound, it's ridiculous. Like, you know, what else do I have to do <laughs> in order to get chosen, <laughs> you know? And that's how I've, I've kind of felt in this scene sometimes. Um, and that really starts to, um, you know, mess with your psyche a little bit and really has you be like man like I'm through I think I've quit Kizumba like seven times already like <laughs> you know um and then um that part has has been a little bit disheartening on a professional level and I hear this from some of my other colleagues here in the states especially in Europe they have a different mindset or different mentality they don't there's racism there, but they see racism as being more of an American construct mm. than anything else. I saw your face. Lauren. Yes. <laughs> um, and also too, like culturally, um, 
face is like, oh. <laughs> yeah, her face. I was like, no, trust me, I've had this conversation. Wow. Um, right. When it's like, oh, y'all were the creators of this system. But that's a whole other <laughs> side point. She's but um, creators of this system. <laughs> I mean, she's not wrong, right? No, not at all. You're out there conquering and colonizing the rest of the world, you know. Um, so the um, other two, like, you know, a Black American women have been perceived as a little bit more vocal in this fight for justice as it comes for having and creating a space for us in this scene and for our voices to be heard. Um, so those are some of the things that I've, that I've dealt with on a personal level um, due to racism, but also as a woman, right? Like the dance scene in itself is a very patriarchal scene, right? Um, you look at who are some of the organizers, um, promoters, it's very male dominated, right? And so other males are also hiring other males um, it's very easy for a, a male solo artist to get picked up to travel versus a female solo artist. So as a female solo artist, I've had to deal with that as well um, because this notion behind like lead and follow is being gender specific. And so because we're in a partner dance, the notion that a male is leading a male is in charge of the dance. So his voice outweighs the follows perspective. And so, you know, oftentimes you see solo male artists traveling by themselves everywhere. Um, and sometimes promoters will say, hey, I'm tight on a budget. Can you come without your partner? Hmm. So that happens too. Um, and then also just having men take directions from a woman and sometimes women taking directions from a woman i've had that as well um in terms of like what could what do you possibly know as a female because you aren't a lead and even if like a male lead and even if i'm a really good lead some people like men want to learn from men and so i've had some challenges in my classes with that as well learn uh actually precisely in that last point that Kimberly mentioned about learning from a woman. I think you, and learning from a black woman, I think there's a lot that you can say uh, as, you, as you elaborate on the answer to the question as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, the first thing that I wanted to mention was the thing about, yeah, like about men, the dominance of men in, <laughs> in the scene and men wanting to, to learn from Johnny, you listen, okay? <laughs> and it's just very interesting to me because I feel like women are actually the economic drivers of the social, like the social dance and also ballroom dance industry. Like part of why we sit out a lot is because there's just a preponderance of women who are there paying, who have paid. And so it's just like messes with my brain then when I realize, when I hear you say that you heard a festival promoter say, I'm tight on the budget, please send the gentleman and not the lady, when the ladies <laughs> are the ones who are showing up, and at least this is what I see, maybe this is just a limited perspective. Um, and it's, it's the same in the ballroom dance world. Like, it's just who comes to take lessons more than more it's ladies who do mm -hmm. so it's easier for 
male instructors to build their clientele um, unless you have, which I am fortunate to have had, women who are extremely strong and refuse to allow that to be a, to be a, bar to be a barrier to the best of their ability, um, like by learning to lead and, you know, helping women to see the benefit of taking classes with women rather than only taking a class with man with men. But it's, it's, it's really, really, really tough. So I really resonate with that. And it just like frosts my cookies anytime I think about it. But some uh, barriers, I guess, to me, as far as my um, success has really been, I think, resources like this for me has been a business that I've bootstrapped. Mm -hmm. And not always from a position of having a corporate job and then using that to fund this. Um, it's been like, I have needed this to work. I have needed to figure out how to make money from it right away. And, and sometimes that led to decisions that weren't from a business perspective, the best in the long term. So that simple lack of resources has been a difficult. Uh, another one has been just lack of access to certain knowledge and training both on the dance and business side. And that can be because of your financial situation. In my case, geographic situation, which was my case in St. Louis. Now it doesn't matter everything and everybody is teaching online, but that was not always the case. So there was actually like a geographic barrier to getting the information that you needed. Um, sometimes. Uh, I think it was also percep perception, like I, it was often supremely frustrating to me to go to congresses and see dancers who were amazing dancers and frankly, in my opinion, not very good teachers and come away from classes feeling like, what did I learn? Mm. What did I, I saw something that was very beautiful. The teacher taught, taught for themselves or, or in my opinion, or like, demonstrated something that was impressive, but I'm not sure that I actually learned something. So it was frustrating as a person who loves teaching as an art, watching that happen and yet feeling like, as you said, Kimberly, like I have <laughs> done all the technical training I can. <laughs> what else do you want from me? Why am I not being asked to dance? Why am I not being asked to teach? At the time, I simply thought I wasn't enough Mm -hmm. I just assumed that it was something wrong with me. I wasn't brave enough to talk to the right person. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good looking enough. I wasn't whatever. I wasn't whatever it was. I just always attributed it to myself. Uh, now through social media, hearing other black women's experiences, like I am finally internalizing <laughs> that, oh, gee, there was probably a racial aspect to that. That can sound really maybe naive. But in, because I think, like we talked about earlier, the pseudo-inclusiveness that we have in the scene, it was just hard for me to believe mm -hmm. that, you know, I was being excluded in some situations because I was brown. Um, so, yeah. Well, I, think, I wanted to just piggyback, piggyback that. I think sometimes when we think of racism, we think of it as like the, like, someone called me the n-word or like police brutality we don't think about the system 
mm-hmm. that keeps it going, right? And the little microaggressions that fall within the system that keep it going. So as well as you, as you wouldn't, I could see how yourself and sometimes myself too, like I was always internalizing before about like, man, if I would have just like taken like one more ballet class or if I would have, you know, done something else or like, oh, if I lose 30 pounds, you know, I was always internalizing what more could I have done? And like hearing these stories um, from other people, you're right, really lets you know that like it's a system that has been going on and we've been like a clog in the the cog in the machine without even realizing that we've been roped up into the Mm -hmm. machine. Because we think of like, well, no one called me an N-word today. So, well, you know, we, th- we think of that, but we don't think of like the opportunity being blocked from right. us because, right. of, because of that, because of the color of our skin. Or um, I've heard other people talking about, you know, um, it was brought up in our survey findings about someone not fitting an aesthetic of a black woman not fitting the aesthetic of a dance team here. Well, what does that mean when you don't fit the aesthetic of a dance Ooh, team? Oh, that's pretty yucky. Yeah, so, um, and and to be told that you don't fit an aesthetic of a dance team. I was team. told, <laughs> I was told that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so it's the same thing too. It's like, well, what does that mean? I don't fit the aesthetic of a team. And then you realizing that aesthetic has to do with your skin tone. It has to do with the way your body's built, you know, things that are all, attributes to having Africanness in us that we can't change, but it's been, um, these terminologies have been like color coded in such a way that we don't even recognize it as being racist, right? And that leads also to kind of the psychological toll that that takes, like I think starting a business is (laughs) energetically and psychologically taxing anyway. Yes. Then to find yourself in situations where you have barriers that are invisible and kind of insurmount, seemingly insurmountable as well, that you can't maybe sometimes even name what it is. Like you don't have to go right. and say, oh, this is this is this capitalist construct or this rate or this racist con- construct that's like holding me back. Then it it just makes it exhausting to want to keep trying. And I have to say, in the ballroom world um, as well, it's it's even worse oh, because there are so few Black people, and people's perceptions of Black people's even ability to do ballroom dancing is already negative. So you have to be perfect on top of perfect on top of perfect. And even then, it's very easy. My coach is world champion, Emmanuel Pierre-Antoine, who is Haitian. And I and he, I am like so blessed to have met him because the psychological toll of being a black ballroom dancer would have caused me to quit mm-hmm. were it not for having him sometimes identify what I was going through before I even said it. He, he kind of helped me recognize the racism I would encounter before I encountered it, which allowed me to be a little bit more psychologically prepared for it and name it so that it wouldn't cause me to just think it was me. Mm-hmm. So in the ball, and he would, t- I mean, he's multiple times world champion. 
and he would talk about how he would do the same thing that a European, literally the same thing that a European dancer did. And his coaches would tell him not to do it because when he as a black man did it, it just somehow hit differently. <laughs> it just somehow was unacceptable. And in this, in the ballroom dance world, which is very stylized mm -hmm. and it is about a line, a look, everything. If you can't make that line or if you can't look like that, if you're black, especially, then it's wrong, and it's because you're black, and black people can't do it. Mm -hmm. And that's heavy. That's right. like a heavy thought to carry around. Um, so really, for me, in the ballroom world, the biggest probably like barrier energetically has just been the psychology of it, knowing that it's always there. And that's not to mention the economic, the reality of the economic effect of it. But really, psychologically, it's just sometimes tough. Because uh, you, um, so I know, you had a famous Latin uh, and ballroom uh, coach tell you something like that, if, if, I, if I may share. Yes, she did. She told me that black dancers have weak ankles. And <laughs> because I am black, there is simply no remedy for this. And actually, when she said it, Kind of, I'm a person who, like, again, having musical training, our teacher is, like, a very important person to us. Like, your teacher, when you, when you have a teacher, you trust that person. You listen to what they say. They're your coach. Mm -hmm. And when, when that was said to me, it didn't feel right. On the other hand, it was my coach. So I kind of received it, and I took it in. And I didn't realize, like, how much it affected me until Emmanuel said to me, we need to work on your feet. <laughs> And I'm sure that someone has told you that you can't have this look with your feet because you are black. Let me tell you that that is a lie. This is simply because you did not receive the same state-sponsored training that that person received from the time they were three. Mm -hmm. So you have to work on it, but this is how you do it. And it's not because you're black. And I wept like ugly cried in the middle of the studio, in the middle of the lesson. Yeah. It, yeah. So it's like you have barriers that are sometimes in your face like that. I hope that person is listening and I hope that she reevaluates her thought and understands that to be a racist thought and a harmful one to say to anyone. And I hope that she never says it to anyone ever again. I had that in ballet growing up, actually. And when I said I wanted to try point, and it was, oh, well, you are flat-footed, and Black people are known not to have arches in their feet. And yet some of this is due to training. Because yep. even in ballet, it's, again, like a question of access. Like, these, yep. these styles are often quite elitist in the sense that they are expensive. They are expensive. To pursue with excellent training, it is expensive. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that it's not expensive for white folks, especially in this country. But we know, like, the socioeconomic disparities that exist in terms of wealth in this country and who tends to have it and who doesn't. So if you want to talk about, like, why a body part in one group is trained and another group it's not, it <laughs> might be, you can say it's physiological, I believe as a teacher, I have always believed 
if you want to do it and train it, it is probably possible with very few exceptions. Mm -hmm. This is an issue of training. And I think most issues like that are issues of training. And I think they should be described that way so that people can understand the opportunity that they have. Because I think Kimberly, if you wanted to go on point and you have the strength and flexibility that you could develop to do it, you should have been encouraged. There's no reason that that should have been a door that was closed in your face. And it makes me angry, sorry. Ooh, that speaks to my nine-year-old heart very well. Receive it, receive it. I do, but you are very right about the the that money part because even at my dance studio, and I'm considered to have been fortunate and blessed for my parents to be able to pay for me to spend seven eight hours a week at a dance studio. There are people who did like the national competitions and um, primarily white, and their parents were taking second mortgages out on their house, already living in an affluent area. So that just goes to show how Lauren is right. This, this training is not cheap. It is not cheap and the access to it um, is not as well. And that has been, um, that has been a, a detriment to you know, minority and underserved and underrepresented communities based on some of the historical practices that lie within racism. I have some reactions to everything that the both of you are saying. I mean, this is incredible. I've been, I'm new to audiobooks, so I've been listening to Stamped from the beginning by Ibram X. Kendi, and he provides a history of racism in the United States for years and years and years. And this language of ideas and beliefs that Black people are different simply because of, you know, body type, and, and leaving out completely the, the things that they've been afforded because of, of res lack of resources. This language and ideas has existed for years and years and years, and it's clear that it's infiltrated the dance community too. So, it, you know, it's, it's not a shock to me to hear that people have been saying things like this, because if this is existing in the greater culture, it's going mm -hmm. to, to infiltrate the dance community and uh, so thank you for sharing that and I do want to go back to two things that the, the both of you said. Lauren you mentioned the art of teaching and the, the both of you have mentioned aesthetics so what has been your perspective when it comes to understanding both the, the roots of the culture and marrying the roots with the art of dance both both as a business owner and instructor and for performances? Well, for me, um, when Andres, Andreas had said, um, like, what am I focused on now for Q's, like my training and now is Kizomba, but it's also more along the cultural aspect of Angola itself in the roots. And um, because that is so intertwined to Kizomba and then Simba, which is like the parent dance of Kizomba, um, that they're very integral and you, you really can't have one without the other when talking about Kizomba. And so when it came to my dance company and what I wanted it to stand for was really that because, um, yes, I could have I easily gone the urban fusion route 
Um, and not to say there's anything wrong with that that has a place in this world for everybody. It is an art form. It's beautiful as well. Um, but to me, it was very important, especially being in our area where we have a lot of dance companies, um, for people to get the right knowledge of what Kizomba is. Um, and also when putting together my dance teams, being able to show that authentically too. Um, so even when it comes down to costume choice, making sure that, you know, I have African print fabric versus having like sequins and, you know, crop tops and stuff like that, because it's important to keep that cultural aspect in there. Well, it might not be like traditional Angolan, you know, print, um, it was still important to, to have the Africanness showing in any type of dance representation or presentation that I do with my team. So people do know that like this is an African dance. While it may look beautiful and it may look fun and exciting, especially when you get into Simba with all the tricks and the footwork, um, really being able to be true and to honor that by still having the African representation in there. Also, when I think about my musical choices too, when choreograph like choreographing a piece, same thing. And to show the, the, the dis distinction between, um, in Kizamba, there's also Terashinya, which is a lot of the more slower sensual movements that have become present in Kizamba. But also I make sure to separate the two so that when someone knows in class, like this is Kizamba class, we're mainly focusing on the movement, which does come from being grounded in the relaxing of your hips. And then that will give you the bunda, the booty movement that people love in Kizamba versus it being like a forced thing. We call it Jinga, right? Um, versus when you get into Tereshinya, you get into the, the actual like body isolations and micro movements that make up the more sensually related movements, right? And so I make sure that to make distinction between those two, so people also know what they're learning as they're learning it. And also the music too, because um, for some reason we like in our society, we like the slower music to jam to and anything that sounds like too fast. I always find it funny when someone's like, oh my gosh, Simba sounds so fast. And I'm like, you just danced 15 minutes to like this live salsa song. <laughs> when, uh, when Lauren ever introduced me to Simba, this, what she said to me is, hey, I think I found the version of Kisamba that you're gonna like. And yeah. introduced Simba. Because it was faster, actually. That was the reason. Yes. And so that's the thing, too, is um, I love Simba, too. I was scared of it at first. Um, but I love Simba, and I love the music, and there's even a greater, richer history behind that. Listen to the, all the presentation. I did talk a little bit about it. Um, and I'll probably do a more elaborate presentation later on about Kizamba and Simba. But um, also making sure that people know and identify which music is which as well in classes because when people see demos and they google they're they're predominantly listening to Terashinya and Ghetto Zook which these all fall underneath the Kizomba umbrella um which is like the more like a lot electronic like R&B sounding heavy bass music versus Kizomba and Simba 
which has the more African rhythms behind it or the African rhythms mixed with the <laughs> Caribbean influence behind it, right? So, um, so it's also important when I think about in classes to make those distinctions as well so that people know what they're dancing to and then also how to dance to it. So people aren't dancing, you know, uh, five million miles per hour Simba tricks on a slow Terrasinia song, right? So, yeah, that was my long way about to answer your question, but it's very important to add that in um, to everything I do in my classes and structures and when teaching, and then also how we uh, represent the dance when we're doing like a choreography piece and having the distinction between this is what Kizamba looks like and this is what Simba looks like by picking out the music that goes with both of them as well. I love it. All of, all of that. I love it. Um, I guess I was trying to reflect it on, to answer the question well and I think um, for me first of all I'm a nerd so before I think before it was super popular, I was always, I was the one up at three in the morning digging to the end of the internet to try to find as much information as I could about every dance. And I love all of them. So, you know, for me, part of what's important to pay respect to the dance, the people and the culture from, with it, from which they arose is just to have as much knowledge as I can personally. Um, when I was teaching in St. Louis, a lot of my clients were black. <laughs> so somehow, I think I didn't feel that I needed to educate them about, no, that's not entirely true. I don't think I, I felt the need to really um, harp upon the um, Afro-Latin root because I felt like it was evident to that community, and that might not have been a correct assumption. Um, still, I did what I could to present artists who I personally am super fascinated by the kind of folklore, like the anthropology that um, is behind the dances that we do. So I would try to bring artists who I thought could help educate people better about that, or promote other artists. Like there was a teacher in our studio who taught Afro-Caribbean. It wasn't Afro-Cuban all the time. Actually, she was more of an Afro-Haitian specialist, but I would encourage my students to take her class because I think it's important to understand where the dance came from in order to have a more rich connection with what it is now that's not just superficially making it beautiful. Um, understanding why the movement is what it is, why the music sounds how it sounds. So I would try to use other people's knowledge to supplement my own uh, whenever possible. Now here in New York doing more ballroom, I was, I have to tell you, I was scared. I was really scared because the ballroom kind of, I feel like salsa dancers are many of them are kind of nerds as well in some way, whether it's about the music, whether it's about the history, whether it's about the movement, like they're addicts. They, once they get into that world, they want to know everything about it. There is not an opportunity where they're going to feel time was wasted because I told them about 
this drum rhythm or about this, you know, anthropological fact. In the ballroom world, there's this sense that we use, it's called fast, quick, and easy. And that's kind of the approach. It's like everything is fast and very goal-oriented. So there's not in the franchise ballroom dance world a focus on helping people expand their cultural horizons through this dance. It's really more of a physical and athletic activity. So kind of to answer the question for me now in the wake of George Floyd's killing and Breonna Taylor's murder as well, I try trying to be more brave and trust that even if my business suffers, <laughs> it's the right thing to do to help people understand how they're consuming blackness all the time in some in some way shape or form um even as even in the ballroom dance world so right now marrying the roots of these dances to my business is just being missional about educating people about where the dances came from sharing my knowledge actively with them and ignoring their eye rolls <laughs> and, and, and it's, it shouldn't be a risk, but it is. And, but I think it's an important one. And I do think that because it's, a, for me, it's important because the kind of appropriative, like, there's so many words in ballroom, Cuban motion. It's like people say Cuban motion, but they have no knowledge of Cuba. Everyone is obsessed. People spend thousands Students spend hundreds of thousands in, in these hobbies in a year learning Cuban motion and have no knowledge about like why that Cuban motion is what it is. And it's just like disrespectful to me. Or like with Samba, the idea of the bounce, so it's a happy dance. Like you just get these anemic descriptions of these dances, like cartoons, you know? And I think it allows people to, again, consume blackness, Latinness, uh, without any accountability or knowledge that they're doing it. So they can just, wee, it was Cuban motion. Great. And so, yeah, that's kind of like how I'm melding that into my business now is I'm on a crusade for people to know what they're doing. Okay. So, uh, kind of with, with your answer, since you, you both kind of touched on it, but I, I uh, want to ask you a little bit more about it how have your as, as you sort of try to do this sort of marrying of the culture with the dance how have your clients or students reacted to these efforts uh by you and i should say you know it shouldn't only be uh your risks as as african-american black women to to carry this this task right mm -hmm. this should be a task of every single instructor doing these kinds of dances you okay. shouldn't be the ones only or you shouldn't even be the ones paying for that risk because you're already, you know, having all those, these barriers. And on top of this, you have to pay the barrier for, for doing the, uh, the instructing. So this is the sense in which I, I think I agree with what Lauren was saying before, women being the, and especially black women uh, and Afro-Latino women being sort of the economic and cultural drivers of, of, of these dances. Um, but sort of taking it back to the question, how have your students and clients reacted to this uh, interest uh, and efforts to marry the culture 
um, with the dances in, in your businesses and classes? For me, it's in my dance company's like mission statement. So you're you're gonna get it whether you like it or not, <laughs> right? So, and, and I've been so conscious about that ever since starting um, starting my dance company because when I had first started, and like I was saying before about you know when you go to Latin festivals, you get kizamba, but you get like oh kizamba light. Right, right. You get like a watered down version of Kizamba and honestly like you may not even like the person who was teaching might have been someone who like only took like two Kizamba classes, right? And then now they're an instructor. Because unfortunately like the organizers in the Latin team they don't know, right? And just like I don't know anymore who's who in the, the Latin world, so I can't expect you know, someone who's in, um, you know, a Latin or organizer to know. So when I had first started my dance company, it was kind of with that other education. And it wasn't until I actually, like a year or two into me having my dance company, I went for teacher training specifically for Kizamba in Portugal with um, Angolan and other African instructors. And where, it, and that was like the light bulb moment that I had where yes, I got the training of like how to teach the steps properly, how to break down, you know, lead follow roles, et cetera. But then there was this thing called a call to Simba, which is an Angolan party. We'll just say that um, where the community comes together and that is when I saw, this is what I want. And this joy that I felt attending that was what I wanted to then incorporate into my business ever since that. And so with me, it came from sharing that culture, sharing the knowledge, sharing even the history of the music and how we have Kizamba today. And then even making the distinction between Kizamba, Gedazuk, et cetera. Like I do a whole class um, for my level one students on musicality and the musical transformation of, uh, there's Caribbean influence as well, and Kizamba music and tie the connection and stuff. So that my students get that, that knowledge. And so I make it a, a, a point, even as a beginner, that you get that level, uh, you get that at least that introductory level of knowledge. Um, the other part too is like, I'm not of this culture, so I'm doing the best of my ability to honor that as well too. Like, even though I'm black, I'm not Angolan, right? So I'm doing the best of my ability to honor and cherish and share the information that I have. But I also then send my students to others who are. Um, luckily, my husband is like Angolan, Angolan, like, straight off the airplane right so he can bring like he can bring that knowledge to it too and he's like a great source of information as well and then also my children are half enrolled so I have to do much more um to deepen my understanding and knowledge and appreciation just so I can teach my children and my husband can teach my children about it but the way that Kizumba plays out in Angola even greater so now I'm going to try to connect back to my dance company once COVID opens all up because that's true to my husband right uh, just because my husband is in a new culture doesn't mean he needs to 
lose everything that he's done traditionally. So now we're going to find out how to merge it even more and to be even more true into um, having such a stronger presence. And I'm fortunate enough that I am the only Pizomba instructor in town, right? So like, you got me or you got nothing else, right? So, so like- Enjoy so that I, monopoly. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to say it like that, but like, if you want Kizamba, you're like at the right place or you don't get it. So, um, you know, uh, if I, I have to do what's right in my conscience. And sometimes that does mean losing people, but I have to think about who are gonna be my people, who are going to be my tribe. And that's who I want to be in my tribe. And you, you, you mentioning that you may not be in Golan, but you're trying to stay as true to the culture when you're teaching the mm -hmm. art, the dance, the culture, it's, it's a demonstration that for all people who are teaching any style of Latin dance or African dance, if this is the space you want to be in, you have to, it's highly recommended <laughs> that you protect the culture and protect the art and cherish it and, and elevate it. So thank you for that. And I think sometimes it, it gets into a hard part between like, respecting the roots and then creativity, right? At the end of the day, we're all artists and we all want to create. And um, how we express and how we do that is different from one another. So while I love, I won't say wow, I said, yes, I do have an appreciation for Urban Kids and Kizamba Fusion and the creativity that it brings to the dance, but also really like for people when when they're promoting that to also say what it is not, right? Because I think with Kizumba, that's been a lot of the confusion and the need to have a title, a category of Urban Kiz or Kizumba Fusion, because people were thinking this was Kizumba, totally taking away from what Kizumba actually was to the point where some people thought Kizumba was a European dance, right? Or some people thought Kizumba was a Latin dance right because um like or a mexican dance because there's a lot of kizamba mexico in mexico so depending on where you are in the world you're thinking kizamba is anything but african and so um i think it's very important that we have these distinctions to yes honor the roots and where it comes from but if you're a creator and you want to push your limits on innovation and how you express your art form by all means do that. I think dance and movement is beautiful, right? And I look at some of these Urban Kids demos, I'm even in one myself, and I appreciate it for what that is too. But I also appreciate for me to say and label that this is Urban Kids. And for me to appreciate and say, this is Kizomba. And so when people come to my classes, they know what they're getting. If they want to go to, and they want something else, I have students in the past, I will point them in the right direction. You want urban kids? Here's this festival. Here's this teacher. Maybe start an urban kids, you know, click within here in, in Raleigh to get it going if that's something you're passionate about. So yeah, just to making the distinction of why it's important to keep the culture there, but to also identify what it's not, but also not diminishing anybody else who chooses not to dance Kizomba but a variation of Kizamba is totally fine as well. 
Okay, so Lauren, how have your clients or students reacted to, to your efforts? You know, so first of all, I'll say like, and I'll just talk about the ballroom dance people. Um, they are mostly white, they're mostly older. And one thing that's kind of good is that in the ballroom world, it's less of a group setting. So most of what I'm teaching is private classes. And the reason why I say that's a good thing is because there's been an opportunity for us to develop a relationship. So, you know, I'm not just throwing random, sprinkling random blackness facts out into the universe. Um, it can be a more specific circumstance and presented in a way that is specific to the person I'm saying it to. So in that sense, it's, it's been okay. I, you know, like I, I'm not sure that I've created a revolution in anyone's thinking just yet, but I also haven't gotten fired. That's a good thing. Um, and I haven't lost clients. But again, like it's been in a very small and specific like control right now. How about your experience with uh, Latin dance, building your customer base and, and that kind of thing? Did you find any experiences there? I found people to be extremely receptive. And as you know, Andres, we had kind of a smaller group of nerdier people who we would stay in the studio and have discussions about these types of things. Um, and it was, and it, and I think it was an important part of how we bound, how we bonded, how we hung out together. Um, that was with my particular clientele and it could also be for me because partially because of who my clientele was, I guess, just because I am a black woman. Um, so yeah, like generally my clientele has been receptive and I believe love to hear that information overall, maybe with one or two exceptions. I mean, it's beautiful. It's, be I mean, it's rich. It's like full. It's like, it's emotional. It's beautiful. It's like, to me, you really have to have a certain heart posture to be offended by hearing that. The risk I think is that someone will feel like this isn't dance. I came here to dance right. and now you're here saying words and I don't want to be hearing words you're saying, I want to just be moving. So that, mm -hmm. that I think is more of the risk. How can you be offended by these incredible stories? Probably if you would be offended by that story, you shouldn't be in my class. I right. hate to say that, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Nice. And I, as I say, my students have been receptive to that too. Um, because it's knowledge that they didn't have before. And I also try to make it like interactive. So they're, they're dancing while receiving the knowledge as well. Um, I've also noticed at Kizamba festivals more and more that they're having either a panel discussion for um, the artist or they're having a like history class as one of the offerings. And while they haven't been like the most packed classes in a festival, they've been well attended and well received for people who are attendees who are there to get that extra understanding and knowledge as well of like the cultural context because you're right, like we, we often just get the steps 
and we don't know what what we're doing right or why we're doing it or why it has a purpose but it's like we hear that historical context even when it comes to some of the music some of the instructors have talked about like this same song came out at a point in time when this was going on historically like giving that reference you know or like um like i don't speak spanish so and i'm working on my portuguese but like um there is that song uh, the rebellion song right and for the longest time i'm like god this is my jam when i come out and i hear it and then it's like don't hit the little black girl like what does that mean and then i'm like oh okay so not my favorite song anymore um and now it has a different meaning to me when i hear it so it's just like one of those things once you get like that context behind it right like you're like oh this has a different meaning now but I, now i have to you see now i'm forced to uh interject um <laughs> Joel you can't talk about it dude yeah uh this is joel no no why is it not no longer i think um i think it's a great song and and maybe it's the whole lyrics uh it's again uh as you say uh you you you, you don't necessarily speak uh, fluently spanish but so the the whole story of this they do say don't hit the, the black that's woman that's the hook that's the, the hook song, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, but the actually so the story of the song is uh there's a couple uh of black slaves in in Cartagena in Colombia the mm -hmm. uh the slaver hits the black woman um and then the her husband the the, the male black slave rebels against this labor and mm -hmm. says, you don't you don't hit my black woman yes and then so that's so it's actually a, for me that's the way I inter interpret it it's a it's song an empowering song yeah it's an empowering song which they're like you know this is not how you know it's, we've we've been resisting this for too long but this was the you know this was the, the top now uh you hit my you hit my wife Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the re the rebellion is the, the rebellion. That's where the rebellion comes yeah, from. Exactly. The rebellion is because that was that was the what is the we say like what's like a, yeah. The the, anyways, yeah. The chorus. Right. So But the other side of it, right? Before when I was listening to that song and not having the context, I was just listening for it for its musical arrangement. Oh yeah. Um, because I'm like, man, these horns I always love horns in salsa songs for whatever reason. I'm like, they're speaking to me. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, yeah, no, 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 no. Right. And like, so I would dance this song with so much joy, right? <laughs> like, you know, and you would get into it, right? But then now that I know, when I hear the, the horns, it has a more different meaning, right? And so, dun, 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 dun. Like, to me, I hear that and I'm like, I feel that pain that that Black woman who was being hit was feeling. So the horns are singing her sorrow. That's how I interpret the song. So that's why I just mean the song sounds differently to me now because no it's still a great song but just in having that meaning behind it before i used to dance with so much like yeah, 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 like you know but now i'm like i have a great appreciation for this song and like i just listen to it versus like trying to be all like jazzy and dancing to it when it comes yeah, on yeah there's more of a connection especially yeah. to the horns right it's like rising so it's like you're you're rising your blood is yes. going you're like oh no i'm no, I'm out of here, you know, I'm speaking yeah. up. Where there's like a, an emotion that, that yes. attached to the instruments. 
yes. rather than just like this bouncy yeah, joyful, I mean, which it is. That's a that's a great point that Kimberly makes because, and it's a point that we're you know here at mixtape we've been trying to make as you know have you actually been listening to what these songs have been saying? Like this is mm -hmm. an old song, and you know there's even older songs that talk about you know the the, the perils of of black men and women in plenty of Latin American countries and the things that they had to do and, and how terrible it, it, it is or has been for them. So, so that's, I think that's, that ties right in into, the, into what we've been trying to do here, mm -hmm. um, here at Mixtape. So um, I'm gonna get ready to wrap up. Um, so, so we have one last question. Um, so in, um, I think we're uniquely positioned given, you know, COVID and what's been happening and all these restrictions to meet with our people to do some work, some great work in reflecting and thinking about our behaviors, our perceptions as they relate to racism as well as other things. But in particular, as we're talking today, racism, specifically for us in the dance scene. So I, I wanted to ask you, um, what could other professionals, promoters, um, business owners in the dance community be doing to practice anti-racism? Lauren, you go. <laughs> okay. Okay, what could professionals do to practice anti-racism? Um, I'll speak first about the ballroom world because that's, a different perspective, I think. I would say for those people who are benefiting most from performing, teaching, competing in these beautiful, frankly, Afro-Latin dances, whatever, whatever part of their history, you know, got taken to the side and made into something else, it's still the music and the movement comes from one place. Um, I would implore them not only to educate themselves, but to educate their audiences about the origins of the movement and the music. Um, I will just never forget watching one extremely famous multiple time world champion Latin dance couple teaching a lecture in China and describing samba as a happy dance. And all I could think was like of the black bodies that suffered. Um, in, in, in the history of the development of that music and that dance. And I just remember thinking what a disservice it was to um, the, those people, to that history, that in another country, some people just think of it as a happy dance. Those happy black people just happily in Brazil started bouncing around and then you have the samba. And I think it just allows people to stay in their boxes of what they think about other people, basically. So, so I think what I would like to see, what my mission is as well, is using dance as a way to expand cultural horizons within ourselves by pursuing the knowledge of who did this come from, when, where, why, who are those people? What do they do there? You know, like just using dance as a way to make awareness that we are not the most important, we're not the center people in the world, we're not the, the only ones, and how can we be aware of other people and their contributions to joy in our lives? That's another thing they can do is hire, please, hire black women. 
Just hire. Hire a bunch. I mean, I believe they should be excellent. I think that, you know, like, if we're going to be hired, we should deserve it. And I know that there are amazing female dancers and instructors who are Black who are so much deserving of those opportunities. And if, and, you know, there are one or two who get them now, there are a lot more who deserve it and who have worked hard for it and who would do great work for you and make you a lot of money, frankly. That's when I talk about dollars. So I would just implore people to mentally expand their idea about who is marketable. We talked about that. And look and find these other jewels of teachers and performers who are here ready and waiting for the opportunities. I echo everything that Lauren said. Um, I really think it's important for us to start putting the Afro back into the Afro-Latin um, as well and, and honoring and respecting that. Um, so that cultural aspect does not get removed and not, and not to do things because it's performative, right? Like, oh, everyone's doing Afro-Cuban movement now. And it's like, well, are you doing it because you really want to or are you doing it because it's trendy, right? So, you know, really analyzing where and why you're doing things. Um, I think from a community aspect, we all have to individually take a step back and look at how we have played our parts in keeping like the structure of racism going, right? And so um, keeping the system, again, so racism is no, long, is no longer just like the overt things like calling someone a slur or violence or anything like that. Um, but it's keeping up the system. And so how have we all been complacent in allowing this to continue? And I think that's something that everyone needs to really think about um, their part, especially if you're an organizer, um, dance company director, promoter, et cetera, if you are the one who are economically benefiting most from these dances. Um, in the culture to really see like what can you be doing to help amplify and to also help change um, what has been happening. And then if you're a social dancer and you're just coming in as consumer, also look at, at your role in all of this too. If you're a white woman, what would your opportunity be? What would an opportunity look like if you took a set a dance out and said here, I'm gonna have my black sister take this dance instead, right? So what would that look like? How would that feel? If you have anger with that because you're not getting a dance, right? Um, think about that woman who was there and had been sitting for 20 minutes and you've been on the dance floor the entire time. So what would it look like you giving up your opportunity for somebody else to have a seat at the table? That does not diminish your power or diminish your light. That's just allowing somebody else to shine and looking at it from that perspective. Um, same thing, um, not to just put the blame on, on white women, not trying to at all, but just giving an example of how you can change your part in things. Same thing, um, next time you go to a social, think about dancing with somebody that you normally wouldn't have, okay? Like, 
Usually in the past, you might have not danced with somebody like me because I'm tall or because I'm plus size. Maybe now come dance with me. You never know. You could be missing out on the best dance of your life because you have put up these blinders uh, because of what you think it means to be a great dancer and what you think a great dancer is. Um, and so I really think in that as we make these small kind of actionable changes, it first starts with ourselves and taking a look at what we have done and how can we do things differently to, to fight it. Because there's a difference between not being racist and being anti-racist, right? It's a different framework. It's a different type of mentality. It's taking continuous action instead of being passive about it, right? Like, oh, well, you know, I dance with Black women, so I'm not part of the problem, you know, when it's like, no, we're all part of this problem. So how can we be anti-racist and be conscientious about it? Kimberly and Lauren, if I nod my head anymore, I'm going to wake up with neck pain. <laughs> like, this has just been... I'm in full agreement with, with everything that the two of you have been saying. And again, I have so much gratitude for the time that you've taken out of your day to talk to us about this. I know Andres has a, a much wider range of experiences with different dances. I just kind of live in salsa. That's my thing, okay? Blame, so, blame Lauren for that, blame Lauren. <laughs> That's okay. So okay. thank you Lauren for, for expanding his palette in dance, but you, the both of you have done that for me today too. And I'm sure you will have done that for whoever listens to this. So we have so much gratitude and thanks. And if I haven't mentioned this before, I'm sure I have, I'm a social worker. And so for me, I, I really love the, the community change, but I know that in order for that to pervade the community, it does have to start from within. And so again, I am in full agreement with this is why we wanted to do mixtape because we need to take a we all need to take a step back and, and figure out what's happening internally and and how we um push forward racist ideas in these ways that we're not even aware of so thank you both for bringing that up and i, I think we are we're done thank you done. for your time yeah thank you so much uh um i think i think um uh, melissa you know, said everything I, I could have said as well. So I'm also nodding all the time. Um, special thank you to Lauren because you were, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't have learned about all these things if it hadn't been for your approach to teaching. So I, I really uh, thank you for that. I think I said before when we were talking to social dancers, um, when I came to the scene in North Carolina, it's been being instructor for so long by what black women I had a very different perspective of what aesthetics was of what a dance team should look like of what you know whether your hair should always be straight like that wasn't a thing in your dance teams when I came to the, to this region and and it, it it honestly it's a little bit of a thing here it was a little bit of a shock to me to sort of get to that new idea of aesthetics that was a little bit uh, I think you call it uh, Melissa countercultural uh, so I, I do thank you greatly for that, and 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 I thank also Kimberly for all that work that you do, really going deep into into the roots of the dance. Even though, as you say, it is not you're not Angolan, so you have to actually work hard because you know, as, as, if I think of how I approach these things, like I'm from Latin America, I get this history for free. You actually mm -hmm. had to 
do the digging because it's not, you know, it wasn't the culture in which you were raised. You had to go and do the research and find out what the culture is. And it's not in the surface. You actually have to do some work to get there. And you've done it. As black people in the United States, you don't even get your own culture for free. Okay. That's so, true. Like That's- your own culture plus the culture that you're trying to integrate the Angolan culture into your your dance practice and so it's kimberly you're working double time you're you're working double triple time so you know this is a testament to saying that this the the burden of the responsibility doesn't just belong to uh black folks it belongs to everybody everybody thanks for listening to side b this is mixtape